G'day guys, Tom Craig here. Welcome to my podcast, The Help Side. Now the help side is a term in hockey that refers to the other side of the pitch, away from where the ball is and the action happens. And in the same way, the aim of this podcast is to give you, the listener, an insight into the other side of elite hockey players, to hear about their highs, their lows, and what makes them tick. We'll also hear about the journey they went through, from having fun in the backyard to playing out their dreams on the world stage. So whether you're a player, a coach, an umpire, a parent, a fan, or just a fan of sport in general, I'm hoping this podcast gives you a window into the world of elite athletes, and even better, encourages you to get more involved in our great sport. You can hear the chat we had last week and others you may have missed by searching The Help Side on any major podcast platform. And if you want, you can like and subscribe our page to make sure that you're up to date with the most recent episodes. Anyway, that's enough of that. Let's get to this week's guest. As one of only 16 kookaburras to have won an Olympic gold medal, Michael McCann can rightly be considered one of the greats of Australian hockey. From his auntie giving him 10 cents a goal as a kid running around Bankstown in Sydney's West, to playing in the pressure cooker environment of the Olympic and World Cup finals, and now coaching at the elite level in Germany, Mick has done just about everything there is to do in our sport. In this interview, you'll come to appreciate why Mick reckons hockey's just in his blood. We'll cover his unconventional path to playing for the national team, to a behind-the-scenes look at the famous Athens gold medal winning class of 2004, with some cracking stories that you won't want to miss. We end up in Europe, where Mick reflects on the culture shock of starting out as a coach in Germany, a nation where things are done a little differently to the way we do them in Australia. Mick's insight, humour and unbridled love of hockey made this interview one of my absolute favourites. I'm sure you'll love it too. This is the help side of Michael McCann. I'm here with Mick McCann, Australian great of the game, um, who's very kindly joined me from Sydney, ostensibly, but he is in Germany. Mick, how you going? Good, man. Yeah, thanks for this. That's great. <laughs> I love the Harbour Bridge in the background. That's nice. Very nice. How are things in Germany? Cold, wet, lockdown? Now, listen, the weather's been beautiful the last couple of days, uh, mm-hmm. the last week or two, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, it helps a little bit with the restrictions that we've got here in Germany. Um, as you probably know, I, I can't get on the hockey pitch. I can't work, so I'm spending a lot of time at home with the family. Um, and, uh, yeah, just basically waiting for the government to, to allow us to come back in some form onto the hockey pitch um, and uh, go back to, to life normally when sure. possible. Sure. And as a coach, that must be pretty difficult. Are you, are you, I know you just stepped down from your role in Mannheimer, but, um, yeah, what is it that you're doing now? Yeah, so, listen, I'm still responsible for the team until the 1st of June. Mm-hmm. So we do a lot of online stuff, you know, two, three times a week, athletic programming, strength programming online, just so the boys can have contact. The Olympic possible players are actually allowed to go back on the pitch and train at the moment. So we've got a little bit of contact there, but, um, but for the men's program, not yet. Okay. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's just trying to keep the, the motivation up a little bit and try to keep a co- little bit of contact as much as we can. Um, and then wait and see, like I said, when we can get back on the pitch. Yeah, it's hard, though, because it's not like there's anything really immediate to, to train for. I mean, that's completely changed the international arena, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit more difficult for you guys because you play more regularly than the club guys do, but they basically know now in, in Germany here they've got no competition probably till September. Wow. So the next couple of months is just about trying to keep fit and just find something else to do to keep the, their minds off off the situation yeah that's mental did you give him a bit of time off at the start and then kind of slowly ramp things back up or how do you manage that 
Yeah, I mean, we, we probably had, we had a good three or four week preparation before this kicked in. So it was difficult. And then it was, okay, we have to wait every two or three weeks for the, the German Hockey Federation to make a decision. Does it continue in May, June, maybe, maybe July, maybe August? Kept getting put back, put it back. And then last week they made a decision that it's, it's definitely not going to happen until September, August, September or something like that. Yeah. So now, yes, the boys have a little bit of time off. You can enjoy the weather a little bit and then just get themselves ready for when they've got to come back. That's tricky. And so the, the guys on the shortlist of the Olympic team, but they're, they've got different rules. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. So basically what they've done is any uh, Olympic athlete, they've got this different tier system, um, can actually come back in groups of five. So one coach and four athletes, for example, on the pitch at one time. Um, and they can train pretty much whenever they want, mm. unrestricted. Um, wow. But that's only for, for these athletes. So I think football are going to go back in the next couple of weeks. Yep. with different rules, but no other professional sport or other full-time sport can do that. It's mental. It's tough. Um, we'll get back into your coaching a little bit later and what it's like being in Germany and, and how that all played out. But before you're a coach, you're a very, very good hockey player, born and raised in Sydney, I might add, my own hometown. Very nice. But what was it like growing up? I mean, hockey in Sydney isn't very big. I mean, a lot of guys and girls, um, well, the lion's share of international players in Australia come from the country. I mean, there aren't many players from Sydney at all who, who go on to play for Australia. Why did you start playing hockey? I had a, an auntie and uncle that were heavily involved in Sydney hockey. I think they were president, vice president of Sydney hockey for a long time. My father didn't play, my mother didn't play. And I think we, my brother started playing, he's three years older at Bankstown. And then I guess I just went. Yeah. Um, I think I was four when I started used to sit on the pitch and pick flowers and stuff off the grass. Um, but, uh, yeah, and that's pretty, that was pretty much my introduction to hockey. And so I, I don't know any different. I only, I only remember hockey memories from a kid running around Bankstown and at the crest, and that's kind of what my life was. Were there other sports mixed into that? or? Yeah, cricket in, in summer and, and hockey mm. in winter. That was yeah, pretty okay. much it. Yeah, it's a big sporting complex, was the, was the Bankstown was the hockey club based out where it is now with all the, you know, there's a velodrome and a whole bunch of stuff yeah. out there. Was it? Yeah. It was all like that. No, it was, it was just, it was just a hockey pitch out there at yeah. the time, yeah. athletic track and a couple of football fields. That was yeah, it. yeah. Okay. Okay. You didn't look wistfully over at the football pitch thinking, what are they doing? Not holding anything. Never. <laughs> Why would you? <laughs> Why would you? Um, you're obviously very good growing up. I mean, but a lot goes into playing, picking flowers on a, on a pitch in Bankstown to winning a, a gold medal in Athens. Did you always want to play for Australia? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's as young as I can remember. I remember, two, I think it was 92. Um, me and my brother, we, we, had, a, we had a long um, um, driveway into the house, concrete. We used to play tennis out there every morning. And I remember they, when I heard that they'd lost in 92, I smashed my tennis racket against <laughs> the letterbox. We had this old pebble letterbox. I just smashed. I broke it. <laughs> Because I, I was so upset, I was so disappointed, and then I said, "Ah, doesn't matter. They won't win Olympic gold medal till I'm playing anyway." So um, that that was the story. Um, but it's yeah, from when, when when I can remember, always wanted to play for sure. Yeah, always hockey. That was it. And did you want to like you were willing to put school aside, put these things aside? That was it. That's what you were going to be, Australian hockey player. That was my life, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, and you scored a lot of goals as a kid. I mean, you're a prolific goal scorer as an Australian player, but also in NHL for New South Wales. Um, there is a little nugget of information I found online that apparently you had the nickname 10 cents 
Is that true? And what is that about? <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah, my auntie used to give me 10 cents for every goal that I scored. Okay. So, so I said, all right, I said, I'll score 100 goals this year for you. <laughs> I think it was under 11s or something like that. And I scored 119 goals in 10 games or something like that. It was something. That's and disgusting. then after, <laughs> after that, she said, that's it. There's no more, <laughs> no more 10 cents for you anymore. But, so she continued to I was about 15 or 16. Oh, seriously? 10, 10 cents every goal. She's yeah. quite a nice little nest egg there. Yeah. Where did it go? I would spend on lollies or something. <laughs> was it like, was it you'd play 11s, 13s, 15s? Did you play multiple teams growing up or? Sure. Hey, sure. I mean, yeah. we, uh, under 11, we had a, a great coach, Laurie Frost. He, he wanted, I mean, in Germany it's different. You can't play men's hockey until you're 16 and four months. Mm-hmm. Very in precise. Sydney, our under 13 team played as the fifth men's team as well. So we'd play under 13s some of us would then go to under 15s or under 17s and then would play with a third or the, with the fifth men's team at 12 years old you know and we used to get yeah. thumped all these old guys out of north sydney or something just <laughs> these these little kids bomb um we used to win most of the time mind you um but by the time we were 13 14 you know i, was, I played my first game with the men's team i think i might have before I was 15, I think, with Bankstown. Mm. Um, but you'd play two, three games every week, every Saturday, two or three, four matches. Mm. Um, now we talk about putting too much pressure on the kids or too much sport with the kids where they play a game and you've got to make sure they rotate and all that kind of stuff. Uh, different world. Different world back then. I've heard your game style described as quite tough, occasionally aggressive. Do you think that... That time playing against men from when you were 13 years old really shaped you as a hockey player. Yep, absolutely. It was the yeah, best yeah. development for us. What is it about it? Just being physical. He's got. He's got to toughen up. There's. You know, I came home. I remember I was probably. Oh, I was probably 13. I was probably about 14. I just started training with the men's team, and Warren Birmingham was playing at Bankstown at the time, and and we were running before training. We were just getting flogged the whole time, and then training was hard. These guys would just beat you up a little bit, and they come home. And, I was, ah, this is tough. And, and dad said, listen, if, you, if you're going to cry about it, don't go back. <laughs> go back. You know, what are you doing it for then? Yeah. So it was, you do it, you suck it up, you keep going and you just, you just toughen up, you know? And I was probably, probably not the best teammate for a lot of guys my age, mm. just because I probably was a bit more dominant and a bit more aggressive just because of the way we had to grow up quicker back in yeah. those days. Yeah. Uh, um, but it was personally for my development, it was, it was perfect. Okay. So when you say you weren't the best teammate, is that, I mean, you scored 119 goals. I, I know you were young, but like you obviously didn't mind taking the shot. Is that kind of, were you, would you say you were selfish growing up or would it, what, how do you mean? Maybe, mm. maybe, maybe. Yeah. Probably, probably in general, I was a bit selfish. I just wanted to win. I didn't care how. Mm. I'm probably not the nicest guy to my teammates, I'll be <laughs> honest. Um, I had a best mate, Scott Barker. I mean, a lot of you guys in Sydney know Scotty and, and, and kind of we were, yeah, we were just two peas in a pod the whole time. He was very quiet. I was very dominant. <laughs> um, um, and maybe he kind of softened things over a little bit in the group. But in general, it's just about winning when mm. I was younger. So mm. we, yeah, didn't really care how we did it, but got it done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It sounds german actually i don't know i don't know if you're destined to end up in germany but um so you said you mentioned you played with um warren birmingham for those of you who don't know he's one of the
best center halves I think Australia's seen. What was that like? How what was the age difference between you and what was it like playing with someone? Obviously he'd played for Australia by the time that you you kind of met him and started getting involved, but was having someone like that to look up to and to kind of model your training around, how beneficial was that? Very it was very beneficial. I mean he was still with the national team. It might have been ninety two, ninety three, something something around that period, mm-hmm. I guess. Um and uh, just the whole training method changed. You know, you used to turn up to hockey training, you turn up and you played hockey. Mm. We'd turn up, we'd run for 50 minutes, uh, do a circuit program and then go and train for an hour. It's just mm. a different world. Mm. Um, but again, this was perfect for me at 14, 15, 16, this whole development period just taught you to train hard. And in this period at the same time, I had Larry, as you know, Larry Mack was, was, was doing all my develop individual development stuff and then i had bob proctor as my club coach who <laughs> was teaching you a very different kind of aspect of hockey about being unselfish about doing the hard work or your principal stuff so like i said when i look back with the coaches i had and with buster in at bankstown at that time it just everything just put in place perfectly for my development now as well as a hockey player and then afterwards to coach because i just learned the right things at the right time from the right people kind of thing. So, so lucky. I mean, when you name those coaches, they're some of the best to ever, to ever coach in Sydney. And I've been lucky enough to be coached by them and, and their messages are pretty, pretty simple messages really at heart, but very, very clear and um, very good for, for a teenager, I can imagine. But so from, from teenage years to playing for the Kookaburras, obviously a lot of time in between there, how was that development like? What was was it a was it a smooth transition for you through the state teams into the national team, or how did it work out? <laughs> not at all. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Easiest way to put it, I had a lot early. So mm-hmm. under twenty one to when I was seventeen, I, it was oh. the first year under twenty ones, we won the national championship under twenty ones in Melbourne back in I don't know, it must be ninety five or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then I assumed it would just run, you know named in the Australian uh, under 21 squad, younger squad kind of thing. And then I had one or two difficult years in the AHL after that. And then I missed out last player that not get selected with the Junior World Cup 1917, okay. which won in, yep. in Milton. Yeah. And then, <clears throat> as you know, when you come out of the under 18 program to 21s, back in the old day, there really wasn't much hockey. You had to perform at the, uh, the Australian Hockey League mm. to get anything, really. And then I went to Perth in 98. I had a year there. Was supposed to play the Champions Trophy in 98. Decided not to take the scholarship for 99 to come home. And then didn't get the opportunity to go to the, the tournament at the end of the year. And mm-hmm. then I kind of got stuck for a year or two where it was, yeah, I play Australian Hockey League. Uh, club hockey, I was playing at Bankstown. We had a really good young team. Doing pretty well there. And then it came after Sydney 2000 where I thought, okay, this is my time now. This is the opportunity. Had leading goal scorer almost leading up to that period in the, in the Australian Hockey League. And then I missed out on the first team that Barry Dancer took over from the Junior World Cup team mm-hmm. up Sydney. And then I was kind of at a crossroads where I just went, man, I don't know. I don't know if I'm good enough. You know, three years hacking away, no opportunity. Guys younger getting opportunities ahead of me. And I'm like, nah, I don't know. And then pretty much took Michael Brennan to retire <laughs> at, the, at the start of 2001, where one, so they picked a score of 24, yeah. missed out again after leading goal scorer in Canberra at the Australian Hockey League that we won, 2001. And then 
he retired and I was like, there's one spot left. Yeah. And then I said to Baz, hey, if you don't give me a chance now, I'm, I, I can't imagine that I'm going to get a chance anymore. Yeah. He said, right. So I went to Malaysia, had a chance there. And then from there, I think I played more games than anyone over the next six and a half years, seven years for Australia mm. Mm. Um, after that opportunity. But yeah. So, yeah, so it was probably a good four or five years of not really sure what's going on and, and yeah. having to kind of my way to do enough or to find a style that fit in with the guys that were currently there kind of thing. Mm. Uh, mm. But it was a difficult, pro- difficult, difficult process. Yeah, that's tricky. I mean, there's a few things in there I want to touch on. When you say you had a difficult, few difficult years at AHL, I mean, we always hear about you top, topping the goal scoring every single year and you didn't flick as well. Is that right? You weren't a drag flicker. You just scored no. goals for fun, whatever. No. <laughs> so when you're saying difficult years, was the ball just not going in the net or what was it? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think, again, I think it was a little bit of frustration, not getting opportunities. You know, mm. Bobby, Bob Proctor was my coach at club level and at, and at, uh, at Australian Hockey League. You know, Bob, he's not the easiest sometimes to get along with and either was I, you know, I was a, you know, 18, 19 year old, a lot of testosterone, Bobby's a dominant guy and we didn't meet in the middle often. Um, and of course he was right 90% of the time. But at that time for me, I didn't want to hear it. I wanted to play. I wanted to score. I wanted to be in the national team. And, uh, and it just took me a while to work that out, I think. Um, mm. And then, um, yeah. And then when I did work it out, where I just went, okay, that I just, I just play. I don't worry about this other, I've got to play good here. I've got to enjoy what I do here um, to be a chance later on. And I think probably, I think probably Sydney Olympics going to every game and watching, uh, getting most of my tickets through Larry Mack, um, it just got, it fueled it again for me, mm-hmm. you know, or I just said, okay, I do it anyway. You know, it doesn't matter about it. Just enjoy it and, and then see what happens. Kind of. mm-hmm. And you were back in Sydney at that stage, obviously. So you, yeah. so you moved to Perth, trained for a bit and why did you decide to come home i had a girlfriend in sydney mm-hmm. at the time mm-hmm. um and then i also got an opportunity with a core hotels um mm-hmm. to start um in hotel management yeah through the o job it was a olympic job opportunity program i'm not sure if it still runs anymore but that's what it was back in the day okay they basically allowed me to to work and play hockey at the same time yeah um and that opportunity came up at the same time and i was like mm, girlfriend yeah 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 <laughs> It, it fit at yep. the time. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. So it wasn't possible for you to play for Australia and do the job. You could play for New South Wales, you could play your club, you could do all these sorts of things, but you couldn't no. do, but I you could, could do that. I could, I, could, I could do that as well, but okay. it would have to, if it was based in Perth, I'd still have to work. I don't know if, if the times would, would match around, around the hockey stuff, but I think the girlfriend more yeah. with the job was the puller. Yeah, probably. yeah, sure, sure, sure. And then and watching that 2000 Olympics, I mean, heartbreaking and you still had that little boy's promise to yourself back when you were playing tennis in the yard. That Did you think, like, I think this is what I want to do. I want to win a gold medal. Was that kind of what really, really drove you to, to go back over and, and be a good girl? Sure. I mean, I, mean, I, I still lived in Sydney. Uh, I, only went, I really only went back to Perth for a longer period of time in 2004. So, okay. so I basically had 98 in Perth and yep. then the rest of the time I was in Sydney. We were lucky that in 2002, 2003, Jamie came to Sydney as well. Yeah. 2002, 2003, around that period. Yeah. And then we had a little training group. So there was Liver, 
Ben Livermore, Adam Commons, me and Jamie. And we basically had four guys that were training three mornings a week. Yeah. Us um, Institute. Yep. So we had a good core group of the Aussie guys that were actually in Sydney or yeah, three wow. or four guys. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, and then we just flew over for camps or, and in the Olympic year, I think we were there from March through to, through to July. Yeah. Okay. So were they self-run sessions or were they with Larry Mack or what did you talk about? Talk to me about those. Cause like, they're some of the greatest players ever running a little high performance program. And so is that, is that what it was like? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, Larry Mack was there 90% of the time. We'd train at six o'clock on a Wednesday morning, for example, because we all had to go to work. Mm. Um, so I had to catch a bus at four thirty <laughs> to get nice. over there. Yeah, but that's what Crazy. we used to do, you know, but, uh, but that was the environment. It, yeah. it was just so driven guys, liver. I mean, liver's just a, you know, he's got, he's got his mind on something. He's going to do it. Yeah. Jamie's the same. People yeah. might think Jamie's a little bit different, but he's not. He's hundred yeah. percent like Adam Commons was exactly the same. So we all yeah, had yeah, a yeah. very, very clear objective of what we wanted to do. We have the morning sessions. Then in the evenings, we train with the Institute as well, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Yeah. And it was, um, it was our own mini kind of AIS program. Yeah. And that was with the Olympics in mind. That was like, we're winning gold at this Olympic Games. That's what it's about. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It wasn't about making the team. That was the thing about our Athens team, which you, you might talk about a little bit later. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. about making the team. That was never yeah. our objective. Yeah. We were there to win the Olympic gold medal. Yeah. And, uh, and we had guys, 20, a squad of 24, which you could have taken any, any of these guys mm. to win. Mm. Um, that was our whole mentality from, I think pretty much after we lost the world cup final in 2002 was the time where we all said, Hey, we sat in the, in the, in the hallway at the, at the Concord hotel in Kuala Lumpur and we said, Hey, we're not going to do yeah. this again. Yeah. Two years out. That's pretty nice. That's good. Direct. And, and this training group really interests me. I'd never, I'd never heard of that. So were they competitive drills? Were you, were you playing two on two or were you just like honing your goal scoring craft? Nah, just two on two. Two or two for an hour, an hour on a Wednesday morning, just full on. Yeah, okay. Nice, nice. And who won? Like, typically, was there, I don't know, was right. there a, or did you mix the teams up? Tell me about this. Yeah, yeah no, we, we, we mix the teams up. I don't know. I can't, I can't remember. I don't, I don't remember going away disappointed too often, so I might have won a few. <laughs> <laughs> it, had, it had to be over a short distance. If it was over a long distance, I couldn't keep up with these guys. Over a short distance, I could play with little give and goes and stuff, so it was all right. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, yeah. they were the best sessions. They were they were fantastic. Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds awesome. And then you moved to Perth to really knuckle down a couple months out from from Athens. And how is that few months? I mean, the team got picked a few months beforehand, uh, or a, a month beforehand. How did it work? Well, we had a tournament at the start of the year in, in Malaysia, and then we end up going full time. I think in March or February or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a fair few trips, a lot of camps, and then they picked the team. Yeah, they picked the team. I guess a month out. Mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not easy man you know I mean you got 24 guys living full time together you mm-hmm. guys probably got more at the moment I, I don't, I'm not sure how many in the program at the moment um, 27 and they, for us and they picked 16 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was living I was living with Aaron Hopkins mm-hmm. and Hoppy had, had played every single tournament from 2002 through to the Olympics mm-hmm. and they didn't get selected so I'm living with a guy that was probably the last guy to miss out um, with the selections or um, and yeah, but the, it's incredible. We, we went, we had the camps and, and everything. They did the nominations when we were in a home location. So we just had a break and Baz and, and Batchy called everyone and, and gave them the information. But when I arrived back at the airport, Hop was the first guy to come pick me up from the airport and drive me back. You know, that was the group. Yeah. And, and 
that was the hardest thing, you know? Uh, And I mean, I don't know, it's just a little silly thing, but uh, in Sydney, every Olympic gold medalist got $20,000 for winning the gold medal. Mm -hmm. In Athens, they changed it to hockey's one gold medal. So it's 20,000 for the team. Yeah. And the first thing the boy said straight away is the money split between 24 guys, not the 16 that went to the Olympics. Yeah. That's just the way the group was. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's very cool. I mean, so the fact, obviously there's a bit of time that elapses between selection and actually going to Athens. That's a tricky time for people who don't make the team. But I mean, if you're saying that the team was all about winning the gold medal, did those guys stick around and make sure that you guys were in the best place to, to win that gold or how did it work? Sure. Every, every, everyone trained all the way through until we let get on the plane. I mean, <laughs> perfect example. We lost Paul Godoy. We lost our captain. You know, two weeks, three weeks before the Olympics, um, so he was nominated, and then he couldn't get fit enough for the for, for Barry and and to Batchy to take him. And so Liam DeYoung came with the team. So DeYoung mm-hmm. came with the team, and uh, and he was in exactly the same situation. The disappointment of not being selected, being told now you are going, <laughs> and then being able to perform the way he did. Just like I said, it was just about it was that, that was Barry and, and Batchy's preparation of the team just to make sure that it doesn't matter what happens if you play you've got a certain role to do and when we go there we go there to win we don't get there to do anything else yeah i mean you said that in 2002 in kuala lumpur that was when everyone sat down as a team and said like this is what we're doing and that was that was player driven uh, yeah sure yeah sure. okay okay and that was a goal every training session was it was it obvious was it clear that you were like most sessions this is about the gold medal this is about the gold medal or was it about individual tournaments. Just tell me about the the training environment, I guess, in the lead up when you were over there for camps or these sorts of things. I mean, when you got guys like Rob Hammond and these guys in the group, <laughs> you didn't want to you didn't want to train against him because he just <laughs> we had guys basically every time you went on the pitch, it was selection, it was yeah. nomination, it was it was wanting to be the best. Yeah, every single session, and it didn't matter. And I think I'm I'm not the only guy. You know, you could probably talk to ninety percent of the guys and that are in different locations that. 2003, 2004, leading up to that period, mm. where the guys, you know, we just flog ourselves. And mm. we used to have little competitions. We had guys in Perth. We had guys based in, a few guys based in Sydney and stuff where we, the athletic testing used to come in. Mm. And we used to try to set a different standard to the other guys because they, <laughs> they believed we weren't doing the work, you know, and that was just a competition from the start. Yeah. We used to yeah. think back and forth, or yeah, you guys are cheating. It must only be 19 and a half meters, not 20 meters. And it was just a competition. <laughs> all day every day Um, and then when we met it was like we've seen each other every day bang it just glued again together and it was just it was just a great time to play hockey for the good guys yeah from everything I've heard it was a very tight-knit group and and what you're saying as well definitely backs that up but it seemed as if there was a bit of an us against everyone attitude and I've heard a story about you I think what happened was maybe the training there was a team on the pitch and they were a minute over time or whatever do you want to just take take through what, what happened in that situation? Is it true? And tell us what happened. It's true. Um, <laughs> just, to give, just to give you the background, though. I think, yeah. the, I think no, but I think the Indian Hockey League mm-hmm. and the Pro League and stuff, I think it's allowed the players to get to know the other players a little bit better. Okay. You spend more time with them in general, off yeah. the pitch. Yeah. The only time we'd ever see these other teams is when we played them against big tournaments. So you used to hate them. I used to hate these people. <laughs> I used to hate everyone. It didn't matter. I used to hate them. This was in Athens. 
uh, the pitch had just been laden. It was quite a difficult pitch to get used to pushing corners, trapping corners and stuff. And, mm. and Spain had played a test match against Africa and we were, were, were training or we had a practice game against someone and they were running late. Mm-hmm. And so Spain decided that they'd continue to, to train on the pitch afterwards mm-hmm. and do corners and just push out, push out, push out. And I said to Baz, hey, Baz, I don't like this. <laughs> it's our time. We, we're on the pitch. And he's like, Michael, just relax. <laughs> hey, the other team aren't here. I said, nah, Baz, I, 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 I can't accept that. We're not going to give him another 20. This is the team we're going to play against possibly in the, in the semifinal. No way in the world. So he said, listen, just be careful. I said, yeah, I'll be careful. So teams are warming down. South is warming down on the side. Um, they're pushing out corners. And I walk over there and I said, guys, your time's up. And they looked at me. You guys aren't training yet. Yeah, your time's up. Five minutes already. They said, we're going to do 10 more. I said, no, you're not going to do 10 more. It's time. I said, I want to shoot at this goal. And the other, of course, there's no one at the other goal. They said, yeah, the other one's empty. I said, I want to shoot at this one. This is where I'm going to score goals against you guys in the semifinal. And then they pushed out, he flicked it. So I just lined up and I smacked the ball at the goals with the goalkeeper standing there, hit him halfway up the pad and then it erupted. They, they wanted to jump in. Our guys jumped in off the bench and everything. And I said, I asked you nicely three or four times, you wouldn't go. So you can go now. And of course, then they went off the pitch and then I went off the pitch and started warming up. <laughs> <laughs> but we beat him in the semifinal 6-3. So, uh, yeah. And you put two past him in that game as well. We're going we're to get to that. I mean, we've spoken about Athens without really talking about Athens, so we might as well give it a label and talk about Athens. That was your first Olympics. That's the thing that gets me. It wasn't just to make the team. It was to, to win a gold medal, and that's a big thing for someone whose, I guess, life dream was to, to play in an Olympic Games. It's difficult to shift that goalpost one further and say, no, no, no I'm not going to play. I'm going to win. What was it like still getting to the village? You've made the Olympics. You're there. You're looking around. Was it all about the gold or did you enjoy it? Did you think this is cool? No, I, I, I said this to these people. I don't think I enjoyed it until after the Olympics. I wouldn't look back now. Yeah, it's ah, easy and all that kind of stuff. But no, you just so, you're so focused. I mean, the hard thing, for, the good thing for me was it wasn't pressure when I got there. Well, I wasn't Jamie. I wasn't these guys that just had to, they had to dominate. That's, that was their job. That's, that's how good they were. I, I was a, I was a bit of a soldier, you know, had a certain role to play. Um, <clears throat> And I knew I could do that. It didn't matter the, what the pressure was. That, that was a, I had an easy job. Mm. Um, I run in the defense. I do all the defensive work so that the other guys don't have to do it. I get the ball, I knock it off, and I get the goal. That, that was my job. So it was an easy job for me. So I didn't have these expectations that other guys did. Um, mm. All I wanted to score, at least score a goal or score a couple of goals and get off the mark, and, and then I was fine. Mm. Um, so when I got into the village, it was, yeah, it was just, it felt like home. It's... it's as weird as it sounds, everything felt comfortable for me. Mm. Um, and that was actually the, the motto of the Olympics, welcome home, because it was in going back to Athens uh, for the yeah, first yeah, time. Yeah. And it felt like that. It just felt like another camp with the boys. You know, we're here to do a job and we're going to do it. I mean, you said before when you were a junior player, maybe a little bit selfish, it was all about just kind of winning, but, and then to change your role completely to knowing that you're not, not Jamie, not going to track the headlines or whatever, just doing your job. That was the thing, doing your job so that these guys could do their, uh, could do their thing. That's a pretty drastic change, I would say, over the years. They were just better than I was. <laughs> better. These guys are technically better than I am. Eglinton, 
<laughs> Dwyer, uh, Elder, Brennan, they were all te- technically much better than I was. Mm. I, had yes. to, I had to find a way. I had to find a way that I could assist them to do their job better. Mm-hmm. That my role became impo- important enough that they couldn't do without me. That's the only way I could get myself into the group. Yeah, okay. That was cracking into the team. You were thinking, these guys are that much better. I just need to do my job and do it well. Pretty much. And Bring something that they don't have or that can, that, that can connect these two individual talents. How, we can, how, how can we connect that a little bit? Can hmm. I be a connection point between uh, Eglinton coming through the midfield at a thousand miles an hour, a little bit like yourself, with Jamie? You know, how can I get these guys getting the ball going forward in the midfield instead of having to come back to the ball all day? You know, what value can I bring to allow these world-class hockey players to do what they do? Pretty much. It's a really interesting answer. That being said, I mean, you, if your job was scoring goals, I think these stats are correct, but you've scored 71 goals in 165 games. That's a lot of goals. That's a lot of goals. So sometimes it obviously meant, and, and I mean, you scored goals for, for AHL in New South Wales, like goal scoring is in your blood. How did that like work into the equation? Was it if you get in the circle, you're just going to hit it because you knew that that was your job, or what, how did goal scoring work into it when you're trying to, you know, enable all these guys to do their their thing? I I reckon probably sixty of them were sitting on a post or in front of the goalkeeper mm-hmm. or a rebound. Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't shoot very often. I I didn't have the ball much. I got the ball outside the circle. I created allowed the space for for our midfielders to come through or for these guys to shoot, and ninety percent of my stuff's on the post. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or in front of goal, a little tap or something like that. That's nuts. Was it just positioning, or like you're obviously a pretty brave player? Was that it? You just knew the spot to be, or talk about talk about your eye for the goal. How did you put yourself in the position? Because the record speaks for itself. How did you know? You must have sensed a goal was coming or something. Tell us about your your goal scoring. I don't know. I, I think I had a I think I had a really good understanding of just I anticipated really well. And I, I could I could make decisions in, in a second where I just have a feeling for is he going to shoot where I got to be? Uh, if I can get to the post, I get to the post. If I can't, I'm going to play a rebound. I generally, and, and, and my general thought was, whenever that ball goes to goals, I got to be I got to be on my way to the goal when everyone else is stopping. That was my main thing. You know, if you talk about these kind of guys around this circle, you, you guys you talk about guys like Grant Schubert, that instinctively are probably the best guys I've ever seen play hockey around these areas and had the quality of, of, of different shot selection as well. My shot selection really wasn't that good. I was a clean hitter of the ball, couldn't flick. Um, I had to, yeah, I had to do what I could do. Sit at post, yeah, be brave, um, be nice and low. and just try to anticipate quicker than the defenders do. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, yeah, that's crazy. So <clears throat> back, to the, back to Athens real quick. Your team, you knew your team was good, obviously, um, but you hadn't won, hadn't won the World Cup in two thousand and two, and you, you, there must have been a few nerves, or did you always know that it was going to be gold? How, how was your confidence leading into the games? Gold, I don't know. I mean, every tournament you go into, you think you're a good chance. Mm. I mean, this, this is the group that won the Junior World Cup in ninety seven, and from two thousand one to two thousand eight, if I'm correct, I'm not, I, I guess that we're in every single final except in 2008. So Champions Trophy, World Cup, Champions Trophy, Olympics, Champions Trophy, World Cup, Champions Trophy in every single final over that seven or eight, six or seven year period. So it's just a top quality group. Mm. And 
And uh, I think, you know, I mean, the confidence, we had beaten everyone going into the thing. Mm-hmm. I think I think I saw a stat from Barry. We had a 10-year reunion back in 2014, and Baz had up uh, at his place uh, some stats and, and, and points for players for different teams. Of course, Bevan George won best player every time. He's a loved child. Um, <laughs> but there was something about 11 games in the last 12 months leading to... Athens, we had scored in the last minute to win or draw a match. And that gives you a lot of confidence. I think it's probably the turning point for us. Argentina, we scored with about two minutes to go or a minute to go to go 2-2. And then against India, we scored with 14 seconds to go. That was the third game. And after that, I think it was just for the boys. Okay, it doesn't matter what happens. (laughs) We're we're in this. We're in every game. If it gets tight, we've got the quality. We've got guys are going to get there. And after that, it was kind of just, yeah. There was not one person that didn't believe we, we couldn't win it, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, you, you say that, um, like, it's interesting. You're saying, yeah, we, we knew we were going to win, but if, if I were to look back, you know, 20 years ago and I, or 16 years ago or whatever, and I look at the, the score sheets, it looks close. It mean, like, I mean, for someone who didn't know the team, it looks like you limped through the pool stages, just made it into the semis, blew the Spanish away, and then... I mean, you lost to the Dutch in the pool stages. It wasn't, it wasn't a convincing pool group. And, I mean, you say that gives you confidence, but, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like you were wiping the floor with everyone. Yeah, the, the, thing, the thing about it is after, yeah, there, was a lot, there was a lot of other things going on there as well at the same time. We had, I mean, for, for most of us, I mean, for, for, for ex, I think it was Liver, Wells, Elder, Brennan, well, good as good as we got into, there was four guys that had played in the Olympic Games before that. The rest of us, there's twelve guys that hadn't played in the Olympic Games, mm. and we had this issue after the Indian game where where Baz publicly, yeah, spoke <laughs> this in the in the newspaper about the way we celebrated after we scored goals. Okay, and this continued into the South African game, which we had, we knew if we won, we automatically in the semi final. Mm. Um, and so our performance against them were a bit shaky. We had some issues, Jamie, me, with Baz, and a couple of other things going on. Um, you were celebrating was, too much, or what? What was this? Pretty much. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's a few goal celebrations that we talked about in the group, and we did it, and, and Baz thought it was arrogant and yeah, sure. um, in the best interests of the team. Because mm-hmm. we went from three one up to three three in a, in a minute and a half after we celebrated these two goals. Yeah, and, Are they good uh, goals. Of course they were. Awesome goals. I got one. <laughs> Worthy of celebration. It'll be good. <laughs> um, and then the, so, so before the Dutch game, we were already in the semi final. That didn't really so it didn't affect us at all. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. We, we went in with just doing what we have to do um, before the semi final. We and we wanted to play against Spain. I mean, we played mm. against Spain in a test match in Athens. Mm-hmm. Three days before the before the opening ceremony, mm-hmm. we played him at one thirty in the afternoon, fifty four degrees on the pitch, and we beat him seven one mm-hmm. in in two times twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. We beat him seven one, and we thought, hey, this this is our team. And yeah. not that we didn't play hundred percent for that game, yeah. but we wanted to play Spain in the semi final. That was fixed. And they were probably a bit scared of you as well, considering your your run in before the pitch. Do you think that made a difference? Like a little bit intimidating. The Aussies are here. Kind of smashes again. I don't know. I don't Thanks, know. But listen, they were, they were probably the most dangerous team in world hockey at the time. Yeah. Like okay. the young forwards, it was a day you never knew what you're going to get, but they, we, you know, you, there's teams you just match up good against. Mm. Always matched up good against them. Yeah. 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 Okay. So the Indian game, you scored in the last 15 seconds or whatever. And if you hadn't done that, then you wouldn't have known it at the time. But 
like considering you lost to the Dutch in the last pool game, if you hadn't beaten India, you would this this story wouldn't have happened. You wouldn't have won gold medal. It would have been is that is that the way it would have played out? Uh, I don't know. We would have we would have we would have played differently against Holland, of course, in the last. Yeah, round yeah, game. okay, okay, okay. okay. Um, but it did. It gives us. It just gave us that extra little bit of confidence to know. Okay, we've been, we've done this before. The Olympics scoring these goals and these and these important moments at the end of matches. Yeah, yeah, right. Can do it here as well. Yeah, okay. And the Dutch game that um, the last round game. Take us through that. I mean, you you lost two one. Taki Takuma flicked a couple of goals from memory. Um, were you thinking mid game these guys are good? Like we might we might come up against them again, or was it? Were you already planning for the for the finals, or were you just in that game? Giving you everything. I don't know about the other boys. I was looking towards the semi-final. Okay. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, we all played less minutes than we normally play. Sure. Uh, the focus wasn't on the game against Holland at all. That was, that was from my perspective. Yeah. I, yep, yep. I was looking towards Spain in the semi-final. Yeah, okay. And did you pull something special out against Spain? Or was it? did you have something saved that you were like, yes, semi-finals, this is time to go? Or it was just belief. You knew you were going to beat Spain. They're the team we want to play. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was my 100th game oh, okay. for, for the Kudawaras as well. And it, was, it was probably the best game I've ever played in my life. Yeah, two goals. I think I, I probably had 35 touches, all clean. Yeah, didn't nice. lose a thing. Um, everything just, every, everything worked for me that day. Yeah, okay. Uh, and, and for a lot of other guys as well, it was probably the best hockey to play. I mean, we dominated. I think they scored a goal at the end, but we're up 6-1, 6-2 at some point. Yeah, 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 yeah. Games, it was dominant. Yep. You're always ahead by a few. Is that a feeling that you try to? I mean, most most elite athletes can probably relate to that. There's a certain game that they've played where they're like, "That's that was a good game." Is there something about that game that you? Is there something you did beforehand to get you ready for it, or was it was it? Did you try searching for that feeling in later games? Was it something that you reflected back on, or it just happened? Ah, it was just a bit of luck. <laughs> luck. You, know, you know, these tournaments. You know, you one day you feel fresh. Sometimes it's just it's just on. The weather's right. It's hot. Yeah. It's, it's, but it's, I mean, we played a lot of these games late at night. Yeah. It was like eight thirty, nine o'clock games in the evening. Yeah. Um, where you've been waiting all day, you had a good sleep during the day. It, it, everything just kind of worked up perfectly. Mm. Um, like I said, we played against the team we want to play. Everyone was fresh. We had a day off before. Um, yeah. And like I said, everything worked for us. Everything yeah, okay. we typed worked. Now I'm going to briefly interrupt here to introduce a feature of the show. We'll call it our Hero of Hockey segment. We know that community sport flourishes on the back of hardworking volunteers who give up their time and effort simply for the love of it. And we want to give you, the listener, the opportunity to contact us and tell us who deserves to be our Hero of Hockey for the week. Tell us who they are, what club they're from, and what they've done for the sport, and we'll give them and your club a shout out. So get in touch via our socials and your nominee could be chosen for the next episode. It's time for this week's Hero of Hockey. Now, we've decided to change the tune a bit and recognise one of the truest heroes of our game, in loving memory of Sam Kernan. The following was put together by members of Sam's beloved Entrance Devils. Sam was a proud Entrance Devil for 25 years. He appeared in over 550 games for the club and was a beloved teammate, coach, vocal sideline supporter and mentor. Following in the footsteps of his four elder siblings, He made his senior debut in the top grade in 2005 at the age of 14 and quickly became a leader both on and off the field. The ultimate competitor who had caused nightmares for opponents and his on-field banter was a thing of legend. A player who could play any position, his hockey IQ was off the charts. 
undoubtedly one of the best players that the Central Coast has ever produced. The winner of multiple premierships throughout his time as a Devil, including 2019, certainly a career highlight for him was being part of the 2013 Hunter Premier Hockey League Premiership winning team that took down North's 7-2. He coached both junior and senior teams and was prepping to continue that in 2020 with the Women's Premier Hockey League team. Sharing his knowledge, love and joy of the game with everyone who was in his orbit was something he loved, especially within his own family, who are wonderful hockey people in their own right. For his contributions to the club, Sam was awarded life membership in 2017 and joined a group of club legends that included his mother, Jennifer Coonan. For those in attendance, when he was awarded this, throughout his speech, his passion and love of the club was clear and inspiring to all. Sam also had a brief yet extremely influential stint with Ride Hockey Club, scoring 13 goals in 47 appearances. As talented as Sam was, he'll be remembered at Ride as the guy who could bring people together and seemed to make it his mission to become best mates with everyone at the club. As a teammate, Sam was unforgettable, the kind of guy that you simply couldn't help but love. Whether you played with him once or a hundred times, Sam's encouraging energy and overwhelmingly positive attitude made him the kind of teammate you'd pick first out of a lineup. Samuel Coonan was, and will continue to be, the heart and soul of the entrance hockey club, and they'll honour him every time they take the field in the black and yellow. He is missed and so loved. 55 forever. Now it's back to Mick, who's going to take us in-depth into what it was like to win that gold in 2004 and talk all things retirement and Germany. And we, we arrive at the final um, against the Dutch team that you'd lost to before. I guess that knowing what I know now, that didn't, didn't matter too much. But they were, there's no mistake, they were a red hot team. They were a very, very good team. Did you put much thought into them before the tournament? Were you thinking, you know, it's possible, like the Dutch are one of the form teams coming in. They had Tunde Neuer, they had Taki Takuma, they had some of the best players in the world at the moment. Talk about the feeling in the change room beforehand. And I know Barry Dancer is a big fan of preparation. He's, he's, he loves a video meeting. He loves these sorts of things. Give us, give us the lead up to that game and, and just, just walk us through it. Well, it's, it's hard. I mean, I don't, remember, I don't remember much about pre-game. To be honest, the thing I do remember about that morning is I met um, Gabra Salise, the, yeah. the Ethiopian runner. I was having, I ran in the morning myself in front of the food hall okay. and I was sitting there on a stone thing and he comes and sat next to me and he just starts, he's on his phone, one of these massive chunky things back in those days, talking to someone back home and then he starts smiling and he looks at me and he says, so what do you do? And we started having a chat and I said, I've played my final tonight. He said, you win. It's no problem. Just smile and enjoy. <laughs> That's what I remember about the morning. That's what I remember mm. about that kind of day. Um, well, I'm going to start with So you ran on game day. That's what you in did. In the morning, I went for a jog and, and, and kind of had a good stretch in the morning. How far? Would you, just a light, light jog? A couple of K around the, around the village. Just to move. It's a pretty cool feeling running through the Olympic Village with these guys running as well, surely. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember. I remember go, what I do remember before the game. We go out as as always. Baz, Baz had up in the room, trusting our preparation, and that was always the thing. And you didn't worry about anything else after that. You say, "I've done everything I, I need to do here." And, and during the game, again, you know, it's just one of these tough games. You you're scrambling for everything. It's half chance here, half chance here. Maybe a corner here, maybe a corner there, and they score a good goal. 
came out at halftime, 1-0. One 1-0 nil. One is nothing, but in that kind of situation, it's, it's a loss. You know, mm. you, you're still behind the Olympic final. It didn't feel like an Olympic final, to be honest. It just really? felt like another big game that we had to try to get back into. Mm-hmm. When it went to 1-1 and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and the long, we knew the longer the game went on, the better it is for us. Mm. We always knew that. You know, and they lost turn at halftime or just after halftime as well, um, which allowed us to get back into the game. And, and probably there's was, there was a lot more pressure on them than it was on us. And even though everyone says, okay, you've never won one massive pressure. They're going for three in a row and no one had won three in a row since the great, you know, Indian teams back in the 30s or 40s or something like that. So, yeah. Um, and then, of course, yeah, everyone knows the story of, of, of the corner and, and all that kind of stuff. But um, there wasn't, like I said, there wasn't a point at any point in the game where I came off that I can remember or I thought, shit, you know, we're in some trouble here or oh, if we don't get a goal, silver. I never thought of that. I never thought when we made the final, oh, I've got a medal. I never thought of that. Mm. I thought, I don't know if we're going to win this, you know. Mm. It's, we're going to win this this last match and, and we're lucky enough to do it. Yeah, okay. Okay. I mean, the celebration that um, after Jamie scored that goal in extra time, but A... How how was Barry's reaction to the celebration, or was it was it warranted? Was that okay? And B and B, the way you celebrated, it didn't look like it was just another game. Was that the point that it all hit? Or yeah, I think so. I think mm. so. I think it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't relief. It, it's golden goal. You know, it's just it's just an instance and bang, and then the game's over. It's never happened before. I mean, I've never been in a situation before where there's a golden goal. To be honest, mm. score and, and you're done. You, know, you see mm. it on TV back in the in the old. Uh, EHL games and stuff like that. If you watch ice hockey or whatever, you know, these golden goal things. But for us, that was the first time. It was just that quick realisation. You score, so you score and then you follow because you celebrate and then you think, oh, hang on, oh, we've actually won this thing. And then it gets even more as you're chasing Jay or trying to catch him down the sideline within those those seconds afterwards. Yeah, goal, great. Yeah, oh, hang on. Tuck, tuck, tuck. And then um, out the hill breaks loose. Um, yeah, yeah, good feeling. Yeah. What do you say in the change room after you've just won an Olympic gold medal? Nothing. Most of the guys come in and you scream a little bit. <laughs> um, I mean, we spent a lot of time on the pitch first before you we went back in there. So most yeah. of it happened on the pitch. Um, but they, man, I'll tell you what, I don't know if you heard the stories, but we, we were, we had some great support there away from the hockey. So John Eels was, was a supporter of ours all the way through the Olympics. So mm-hmm. I remember the first game, I had the ice bath after the game. He's come and giving me Gatorade or whatever sport drink was. Yeah. Mike, you need these pack tag. I'm drinking. The, he's picking up our towels off the ground. <laughs> so after the game, we get into the change room and John Eels is standing there with, with cases of beers on his shoulders and no T-shirt on. And we're like, nice. what are you doing? Like, what happened to his T-shirt? He had to give the T-shirt away to get the drinks. <laughs> so we've got, beers, we've got beers downstairs. So him and, uh, what's his name? I think it's Tompkins, the, the rower, one of the guys from the Awesome Foursome. Oh. He was in there and he helped to get some beer and then... We actually had a everyone had to get up, say a few words, and, and scull a beer and all that kind of stuff in the, mm. in the change. And that was mm. probably the first time away from the pitch where we had family and everyone, where we could actually go back as just as a small group and, and kind of enjoy it a little bit. Yeah, and there's stories of uh, the crowd that day as well. I mean, there are great Aussie stories of of sneaking Australian athletes into into <laughs> the game, and I, and of the the final is specifically being mentioned. Apparently, the mm-hmm. the crowd was full of green. Did you have any idea beforehand or was it, did you notice during the game? No, we, we didn't. But I, I think the story goes something like that. Laurie Lawrence. Had, had Laurie Lawrence. 
And what happened before was whenever there was a, a gold medal match or a, a medal match, they would offer tickets at the IOC in the village for people that wanted to go and they'd take an extra bus. Mm. So Laurie Lawrence, I think he had 13 or 15 tickets. <laughs> But he said, listen, we've got a bus full. We've got a hundred, we've got a hundred people we can take. And then the line was massive and they took a hundred people. And then they had the, with their accreditations, they show it where they hold their finger over the, what sport they are. And then mm. they walk in. And he, I think he got 15, 20, 30 people in. And then they said, oh, hang on, we need to check these passes. And then he started giving some tickets. And then at the end he said, yeah, run. So then the people <laughs> ran. It, it was massive. But if you look at the photos afterwards, the whole section on the far side from where the stadium was, it was just full with green and gold. It was incredible. Mm. Mm. And you must have, yeah. like, obviously at the time you would have been looking up and it probably wouldn't have realised that it didn't really check out what was going on there. But did they come come in later and tell you about it? Or did you make, like, obviously, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, Johnny was in, in the rowers and these sorts of things. You made some pretty good friends in the Olympics. Um, sure. And these friendships have obviously lasted, but what was it just a, a, a flood of those Australian supporters coming in and telling you about how they got into the game and all this sort of stuff? Or did that kind of reveal itself in the next few days? Yeah, the next few days and the next day and the thing, we also said the same thing. We said, there's so many people here. Like, we didn't mm. think, and a lot of athletes, and they said, yeah, this is what happened and <laughs> all these other things. But some of these other guys were also part of the committee. So, so John Eels and Tompkins and these guys were part of the committee. And even even guys like Georgie Barton, I don't know if you know George Barton. George Barton is from Tamworth. He he, mm. he was a played with me state hockey as a junior, but he was a world class shooter. Mm. So he was there for the Olympics shooting, and so we snuck him into the into the changing <laughs> after the game as well. And, and and we probably had ten people, 10, 15 other athletes in our in our change room after the game, which was yeah, it was just it was nice. It was it wasn't mm. too many people. It was it was just the perfect setting for for what we wanted. How do you go back to normal life after, I mean, you, you kept playing hockey for a few years. We're going to touch on the World Cup 2006. But how do you go back to, to training, back to day one? You've achieved everything that you've set out to achieve in your Australian career so far. I mean, you did it. That's it. Gold medal, everything you've been training for, done. You got to go back to training. How's that feel? What does that look like? Yeah, not, not for me. I mean, I thought, <laughs> I, yeah, I thought if we go to the next tournament, we lose. We're not the number one team anymore. Okay. So we've got to win. We've got to yeah. <clears throat> continue to win. Or, or when we finish, or, oh, my thought was when I finished my career, everyone's going to think, okay, that was the last thing you did. Mm-hmm. Sure, 2004 is great, but you finished second, third, fourth place for the next two or three tournaments. And yeah. what kind of, you know, what, is, what does that leave you? And that's, that, that was kind of my thinking. And I think for a lot of guys, it was the same. Mm, okay. Okay. So going into the 2006 World Cup then, you ended up losing to the, a very good German time, uh, team in the final, but you were a very, very good team in the lead-up. And I've heard um, other players talk about that game, talk about op- missed opportunities and learnings and these sorts of things. And it's obviously a game that's etched itself into the memory of everyone who's played in it. But for the people who haven't heard the story of the 2006 World Cup and that sort of thing, would you mind just going through a little bit about the team in the lead-up and, and what happened in that final? Won 2004, won the Champions Trophy 2005 in Chennai at the end of the year. Basically undefeated pretty much in that whole period. um, Top tournament. We played a very, very good tournament. If it Mm. wasn't in Germany, I don't think they would have beaten us in the final, I'll be honest. But what a lot of people don't realise is that we lost Schubert, maybe Wellesley. So we, we, we had two of our core players that were out. Just prior to the games, just okay. just prior to the World Cup, and I think within the last week of the tournament or something like that. So we had 
Eddie came in, Russell Ford came in, and then in the semi-final, in the last five seconds of the game, Jamie popped his hammy. So we went in the final without him, and at the time, he's still the best player in the world. He got player of the tournament without him playing in the final, um, and we got off to a start. We got off to a great start, 3-1, you know, but the difference is, guys, like, our, our game was based on we dominated with ball possession a lot of the time with the Aussie guys. And we were in your face. We were hard defensively. We had a lot of ball. We built pressure over periods of time. We did that in the first half. We were able to do that in the first half. And then in the second half, you know, guys like then more responsibility and guys like myself on, on, I think Shuby was injured as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that missed the tournament. And then we had, a little, we had a couple of guys that had to take more responsibility. And I'm not the best ball handle that you've ever seen in the world either. Um, so even though we had a lot of guys with some experience, we struggled in the second half just to control the ball and have this dominance that we've had before with the ball. And they get little half chances, score a goal with the back of the stick, all that kind of stuff and the momentum. I mean, there was 10, 15,000 people in this crowd. It was, it, was a, it was probably the best tournament we'd played in in regards to crowd and noise mm. and all mm. kind of stuff. And um, they got into the game. Zeller was world-class and then... Got back to 3-3, scored a goal and a one against one contest, 4-3. And then I think we had one or two chances at the end of the game. But sure, it's difficult to look back like that. I think we're probably a little bit lucky to go up three when we hit two corners. We're a little bit lucky on as well. Um, but in general, with the way it went, losing two or three of our key players before the World Cup, losing Jamie for the final, when you look back, it's still a very good tournament for us. Yeah. Yeah, okay. a tournament where I, look, where I look back and think, nah, we, we blew it. Mm. Maybe we didn't have the quality we needed in the final shore against a very, very good team, but um, yeah. Yeah, and Germany were good. No, they were a very, very good team in time. Yeah, yeah, okay. You retired the following year, I think in 2007. Some say it was a little early. And it's not like we're, we're a big sport where, um, you know, there's millions of cameras around. There's, they're not running your story all over the news. They're not they're like, why does he retire? These sorts of things. I'm interested in why, why you retired. I mean, you were 30 at the time. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, it was a year before the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And had a few personal issues going yeah. on. And um, there was a pre-Olympic tournament in Beijing in August. Mm-hmm. And at this, at this time, I was, I'd already spent one year in, in, in living in Barcelona, playing in Barcelona, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I never drank. I never mm-hmm. really partied ever in my life, mm-hmm. you know, from the time I was probably 17 to, to the time I, I finished with the national team. Was that a hockey thing? Yeah, a bit of hockey thing, a bit of lifestyle. I mean, I was working as well, so I didn't have time, you know. Yeah. Play on the weekend, and go back to work Monday, and six o'clock morning sessions and all that kind of stuff. And in Barcelona, I lived a lot. I mean, I had a great time. And it was kind of, it was difficult to go back. And, and then I had to make a decision. And the hardest thing for me was, and I said to Baz, I don't want to go to this Olympic test event in, in Beijing if I'm not going to go. If in my heart, if I'm just thinking about it. And then I said to him, yeah, I, I really don't believe I want to go back for the, for, for the centralized program. I, mm-hmm. I've met someone in, in, in Barcelona as well. And if we didn't win in Athens, I'd go back, 100%. Yeah. I don't need it anymore, really. I don't need this. Yeah. And so I decided at that time, priority, don't mess the team up by taking a spot 
and just go to Beijing just to go to Beijing to say I've been there. Yeah. There's someone that could possibly go and play in, that, in the Olympics 12 months later mm. and um, see what happens after that. And I knew eventually if I wanted to live in Europe that I'd have to get into coaching as early as possible. Long story with visas, with all that kind of stuff. With hockey not really being professional, you have to really get into coaching as early as possible to stay long-term. And that was the other option that I had um, in Germany as well. So it kind of matched everything at the same time. Well, that's a, that's a pretty good segue to, to coaching. You're obviously a very prolific coach as well. You've coached with the German national team and you've been the head coach of Mannheimer, who are a very successful German top league team for a long time. When you gave it up, you thought straight away, coaching is what I want to do. This is, did you always have a, a natural affinity towards the tactics of the game and these sorts of things? I don't know. I, I, it's just my blood, man. I love, I love, I love, I love my hockey. I, it's mm. just, um, I think about it all the time. I, I generally thought about it probably better than other people, I think, or more about it or differently to other people. Um, but at the same time, like I said, if, if I knew if I wanted to have a life in Europe, I had to get into coaching. And okay. With the language barriers in different countries, English is great, but it's difficult to work there if you don't speak the language. And that really wasn't a priority for me to start with. Um, so hockey was my best way in. And of course, winning in, in 2004 and having a, a long international career, not a long international, international career, there was the easiest way for me to be able to set up a life in Europe. Mm, mm. And it was always going to be Europe. Yeah, my girlfriend at the time was from... Uh, my wife now is from Austria, so mm-hmm. it was always going to be easier to be in a German-based speaking country, which mm-hmm. you could also work and, and do other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, Europe was the first priority. Mean, I spent a lot of time in Australia. At that time, Europe was new. It was, it was exciting, so mm. that was an option. Yeah, okay. okay. So initially, you mentioned there's a language barrier, but there's also a few, few cultural barriers, I guess, between the Australian way of play and the German way of play, and you've got to somehow like I guess adjust your style or adjust the team style or how did that work that initial foray into coaching in Germany I thought that they should I, mean, I was a little bit naive I thought I come in and they have to change to my way mm-hmm. it doesn't work that way <laughs> in Germany okay. in Spain yes a little bit but in Germany no I mean I had to learn so I, so I, I mean I played the first two years or two and a half years I assistant coach with the team but I played um, and I learned very quickly that I have to give up everything for them first and then through the back door a little bit, just start to give my ideas and start to build a little bit more around like how I like to do things. And once I did that, it was quite easy to, to fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the last, I mean, I've been in Mannheim now for 12 years. Mm-hmm. Now it's a lot of the way I want to do it, but it's kind of was their way. Then it went all the way to my way. And now it's kind of back in the middle again, where it's a really good mix of, of yeah, aggressive, but technical, patient, but full speed kind of thing. So I think we're at a pretty good spot now that uh, we've been able to kind of meet halfway in the middle of it, but it's taken me 12 years to do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And there's a lot about the German style that you've obviously learned about now that you couldn't possibly have known when you were playing. Are there moments when you look back on, you know, the good German teams in the past and you think, oh yeah, that makes sense. Now that I know everything I know about German hockey, has it changed much or? Um, the, the system hasn't really changed. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. I mean, it's all club-based system. So you have to you have to uh, understand that that all clubs here, all clubs generally have a very good head coach at each club. Most mm-hmm. of them are full time. Some aren't full time. Um, that's first division, second division, 
at smaller clubs, they generally have one full-time employee that does a lot of the hockey coaching. Mm-hmm. So, for example, my club's probably got more full-time coaches than a full-time coaches in Sydney or in New South Wales hockey. Oh, wow. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, it's very club-driven, um, and that professionalism is put in a, at a club level here. Mm. In Australia, we have to wait till we get to the AIS. We have to wait till we get the institute or, or national programs to get that kind of attention mm. and that development and that consistency of, of, of development happens here under 12. So I, I, I also coach the under, the under 11 team here mm-hmm. uh, or under 10 team here. So it starts from the start. You've got your men's coach also coaching the under 10s. Mm-hmm. And that's just the German development way. Everything mm-hmm. gets passed through, through, through the whole club from the top all the way through to the bottom very, very quickly. Yeah, okay. I mean, when we look at the Germans, they always seem like a very, very well-oiled machine. Like things go right. Even their water bottles are lined up perfectly on their bench when we look at <laughs> I mean, And it's saying that's, that's because they've done it their entire lives. Yeah, may, yeah may, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, I, yeah I, don't, I don't know. It's, it's a little bit, it's hard for me to, to really register it now because yeah, sure. I've been part of it for a bit. Mm. Um, what I, the, the thing about the Germans is, like I said before, I used to hate them. <laughs> I, I used to hate them. Mm. Um, but their, their hockey lovers, they're, they're very similar to us in, in a way. They have mm. their way of doing things. They're very um, determined. They're very, uh, they want to win. Mm-hmm. And they have a system like we do that we believe in. Mm-hmm. We believe from, from the past, Australia being a, a pretty much in the top three or four at every Olympic Games, for, except maybe the last one for like 40 years, mm. we trust in that. Mm. They trust in, in the stuff that they had set up before that it works. And as long as they get the development of the players right, then the history will help them to continue to be successful as, as they were in the past. That's the way they do it. And they really, really believe in that. And when I was with the national team, it changed a little bit because I brought a little bit, something a little bit different mindset. But still, they still, even when I'm gone, it's the same thing. They've got something they believe in from the past. It worked. They believe it. And they believe if, if, if they do the work and they're good enough that, that they'll have another successful year the following year. They never, they never question themselves about that. Yeah, okay. And I guess with, with Germany, it always seems like they pop up at the right time. Like they might not win champions trophies for years and years. They might not win any tournaments, but come the major tournaments, they're there and you know they're going to be a serious threat. How is it they, that they manage to get it? It's, it seems like they just get it right every time. I think it depends on the coaches a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think it depends on the coach. I mean, Marcus Weiser is a master with that kind of stuff. I mean, he, what he did with the women's team back in 2004 and 8, 12 in that, in that period. And one of his strengths was that he didn't have that much time with the national program. I mean, th- this is not full time. You have to understand the Germans, because the country is so big, they meet for camps and that's it. Mm-hmm. So you guys might have in a calendar year, 250 days together. They have a hundred mm-hmm. if they're lucky, if mm-hmm. they're lucky, but, but they do it enough where you kind of starve them a little bit for being together. And then you bring them together, you feed them a little bit, you take them away, then they're hungry. And then you bring them again together before. Yeah, he had a really good understanding of that. And that's what they've kind of done pretty well here. And at the same time, from a very young age as well, is that they have under 16 tournaments for, for the national teams that prepare them much better internationally than, than we have. Under, I don't think he even played under 21 
practice match. Mm-hmm. Like international for Australia, for example. I think I played my first game in Kuala Lumpur with the men's team. There's a tournament in Mannheim that happens every second year. Holland, Germany, Belgium, and Australia come now with the, with the, with the schoolboys and the schoolgirls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've got basically four countries in the world at that age group every second year competing. And if not, it's, a, it's another tournament somewhere. And I think that's where they do it. And they, they, their mindset starts 16s and then it's 18s, 21s. They have European Cups and all that kind of stuff. It's just in their system. This is the way you do it. And it's, it's, it's written. This is, this is what you need to have at this age. This is at this, this is at this. And they follow it. They follow mm. it to the law. And mm. uh, I think that's why they've been able to have that consistency for a long time. Yeah, okay. Look, I could. Uh, I feel like I could sit and chat hockey with you all, all day, but I've told my producers I'd try and keep it to an hour this time anyway. Um, I've got a couple more questions, though, before we go. First one, is, is Germany and Europe, is that it for Mick McCann? You're happy to settle there, or is there any desire at all to come back to Australia and, and coach here or play here or whatever? Uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to come home at mm. some point, but uh, I think with the young family... It's mm. difficult. Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, um, I think I think un- un- unless unless when the little fella's a little bit older and can go to school for a year or two and, and actually get to see Australia and, and something like that, maybe. But it would only be for an Olympic cycle if I did. It wouldn't be full time. Mm. Okay. Three more questions to finish this off. First one: best player you've ever played with or had in your team? <laughs> Jamie, Jamie Dwyer, best player, most influential player. Okay. That can just can win your shit. Yeah, okay. Without even thinking about it, to just win your stuff. Yeah. I've got a question. So a lot of the guys in the past, they've said the best player they've ever played against is Mo Furster. When you've been in Germany for the last however many years, you would have seen him probably come from, you would have played against him in his first, in his early years. Um, that that level a, a lot. Exactly. What is it about him that, that makes him so good? Or uh, Yeah. Yeah, he had everything. Mm. He had everything. He had all the quality stuff, but he was a competitor. He didn't want to lose. Mm. Mm. Best player I ever played against probably uh, Timor Vest was the best defender I ever played against, or best mm. international player. Mm-hmm. But Bevan George was the was the the hardest guy I've ever played against mm. by a mile. Bevan George, best <laughs> defender ever. I reckon I beat I beat him three times in my life, and it was all in one session after he was injured for about six weeks and just came back in his first session. Just his tackling, tackling, and reading the game. Patience, yeah. patience. Just he, he waits for you to make a mistake. Just patience. Mm. So his football. Don't, don't tell him I said that though. No, no way. There's no way he's listening to this. Are you kidding? <laughs> he's got, he's got stuff to do on the farm. Um, last one. Yeah. Um, for people growing up in Australia, they like me for example. I watched you win gold medal when I was nine, and I think that's that's the same. The the 2004 gold medal winning team is kind of immortalised in the sport in Australia. There are a lot of kids who you would have been their hero growing up. And what, what's one piece of advice that you'd say to those kids now if they want to achieve the heights that you got to? Yeah, you train now. You play now to win the big gold medal from the start. You, you don't do it to make a team or, or whatever. You, you do it properly. And Listen, there's always going to be an Olympic gold medal. Mm. You know? it may as well be you that wins it. <laughs> That's nice. That's a nice Olympic note. <laughs> That's a brilliant note to end on. Thanks, Mick. Thanks for thanks for chatting to us and good luck with, with the return to play and everything going on for you in Germany. Thanks, man. You too, huh? And I look forward to seeing a little bit more from the Kookaburras because I'm still one of the top fans and uh, look forward to you guys having a real successful program and, and making sure we can 
have a reunion together as Olympic gold medalists <laughs> in the future after Tokyo. Sounds good. Thanks, Vic. Big thank you to the production team of David Moore, Tim Collier, and Jimmy Stevens. If you do like the help side, please like, subscribe, interact. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at the help side on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. That's it for now. We'll catch you on the help side next time.